Hey everybody, welcome back. 22, amazing, amazing, amazing. So um, hope everybody's having a good week. I have the usual introductory kind of house cleaning, housekeeping type of thing. Um, I did a, for those of you who are nightclub people, um, I did a really, really rich two, two hour interview with David Loy. Um, if you don't know him, you need to know about him. He's, he's amazing. Um, it turns out he lives 15 minutes away. So we've actually been hanging a little bit. Um, he's an amazing philosopher. I think one of the most sensitive thinkers on the planet today. And I really like his work because not only uh, is he just a tremendous scholar? I mean, his scholarship, his rigor, his thinking is is amazing. Maybe 14, 15, 16 books. I'm actually plowing through every single one of them. Um, but he's a Zen practitioner, and so he he walks the talk, so to speak. And what I really like about David is his activism. He's a very deep social activist, writes about the ecological crisis. In fact, his last several books have been about what he calls the eco-sattva, which is kind of the contemporary bodhisattva. Um, and he has a, we had a very interesting conversation that included a critique of uh, Buddhism altogether, that if Buddhism can't really respond to what's happening in the world today with all the isms, that uh, how relevant is it? Um, so super excited to have that conversation with him. Those of you who are uh, lucid dreamers, um, I scheduled an event, uh, interview with Daniel Love um, for next week. He's a, a writer and lucid dreamer um, out of the UK. Also my friend Dustin DePerna, uh, a big integral writer, thinker, he's on deck. Um, and Yogaville, I'm doing my uh, wonderful program starting tomorrow um, and going Saturday, Sunday, part of the day, Monday. And I think Prem is probably listening. She'll ping a link to that. I'm quite excited about this program. Yogaville is a really great group of folks. And Prem, who's invited me, is amazing. So I'm super excited about that. She'll throw up a little link around that if you're interested. Um, the book study group, there's the book in the background. I guess it's over here. Um, we're launching that September 22nd. I think Andy will throw up a link towards that. So um, I think that's all I have to say around those fronts. I did want to share, I had the coolest lucid dream last night. I, you know, I've been doing this stuff for 40 years. So um, I have a lot of lucid dreams because I work on this stuff a lot. I, I soak in it, I write on it, I teach on it. And it's like, I remember my friend, my friend Stephen LaBerge, you know, the, the big Stanford PhD who actually proved lucid dreaming in 1977. When he was doing his PhD dissertation at Stanford, he was having lucid dreams every single night. And he got to the point with his mild technique and others where he could, he could basically initiate lucid dreams at will. So um, if you do the work, you, you have these dreams. And so my default practice is, is the wake and back to bed method where I get up a couple hours before sunrise, before my normal waking time. I stay up, I usually do my meditation in bed, and then I simply go back to sleep. And so I had a really long, long dream, lucid dream. Um, depending on who you uh, read, researchers, some researchers will say that the, the dream time is isomorphic. It's the same as the type of dream time, type of time we experience in waking life. Um, other scholars, researchers will say it's not quite the same, but for me, this one seemed to go on, I don't know, 45 minutes or so. And what was really cool about this one is, um, is worth sharing is 
in, in uh, very many ways, every aspect of lucid dreaming, dream, especially dream yoga, circumambulates this core topic of uh, emptiness. As I would argue, everything in Buddhism altogether centers around emptiness. And so all the stages of, of dream yoga practice really are about understanding this. In fact, one way, as I think I mentioned last week or two weeks ago, one way to define what enlightenment is, is it's the realization of emptiness. So that's why this is a big deal topic. And so um, for some reason, I, I tend to capitulate towards stage three of, of my kind of mapping of the, of the dream yoga stages, which is all about putting my hand through walls, walking through walls, you know, um, doing all that sort of thing. And, and this dream was really kind of fun because um, all these objects, it's like I was testing, somehow testing the, the emptiness, the stage three stability in my practice, because I, I either invited, and I wasn't clear if I invited these entirely or whether they were just coming at me, but I was like a, I was like a, a video Nintendo or ninja, ninja kind of dream yogi. And, and all this stuff was like flying at me, right? All these weapons, and which is an interesting you know, sim, symbolism, right? All this stuff coming at me, all these attacks, environmental, political, whatever. So all this stuff is coming at me. And, and I'm sitting there, you know, kind of just like this immovable mover, unmoved mover. Um, that's the way Aristotle talked about. It. That was his version of God. So I guess I was playing God last night. The unmoved mover, where all this crap is coming at me. And I'm just kind of standing there in, in this like this really cheesy, you know, kung fu posture. And as all this stuff is coming at me, it was just like it would hit. You remember um, that last Avenger movie? Remember when everybody dissolves into sawdust? You know, that really cool, creepy scene. Everyone bites the dust. Well, all this stuff was hitting um, my ninja hands and just melting on contact. It was like, it was awesome. And even at the time, uh, I was lucid enough to say, oh, this is awesome. This is like, you know, the main teaching in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where it says emptiness cannot harm emptiness. And so all this stuff is coming at me and, and you know, it just it, it didn't have a place to land. It just, I put my hands out and it just dissolved on contact. So it was pretty cool. That was kind of a cool dream, um, especially with all the crap that's coming at us now. Um, and so the other thing I wanna share with you before I, I'm gonna just do a little final riff on my book is I read a couple interesting uh, articles this week. I get this on the New York Times, which the book review and the Sunday review, if you get it, it's, it's worth a, the price of the whole paper, honestly. The Sunday review is, is just a, a wonderful collection of scholarly articles all over the map. And I read a piece in there by a psychiatrist professor who was talking about, and I've heard this many um, times in different ways, but I love that it made the New York Times where he was saying, that uh, this is conjoined with another study that, uh, in fact, I just read this morning in the Denver Post that, that surveys, new psychological psychiatric surveys are showing that at this time today, 50%, half the adult population is suffering from some form of depression. Um, and the reason I mentioned this in conjunction with this article I read in, in the New York Times is what the psychiatrist was saying is that um, there's definitely a very important difference between just feeling sad and feeling low and feeling depressed. They're not the same thing. Um, in fact, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche talked about the genuine heart of sadness, 
um, which is a really beautiful, rich topic that maybe we can talk about at some point. But what the psychiatrist was saying is that just because you're feeling down doesn't mean you're depressed. In fact, some other studies have shown, and I'm sure the psychologists who are listening could, could um, back this up, that people who tend to be a little bit more on the kind of depressive scale of things, a little bit more morose, are actually those who are more in contact with reality. <laughs> I mean, you know, samsara is really depressing, right? Samsara is really depressing. And so the psychiatrist, what the psychiatrist went on to say that we don't have to just medicate everybody with an antidepressant. Now, I am not saying that there is definitely not a place for pharmacological orthomolecular intervention. For sure there is. But I think any psychiatrist who's really honest will tell you that these meds are way overprescribed. Like even like the opioid thing that I work with, it, there's, you just don't need to put everybody on an antidepressant just because they're feeling down. Sometimes feeling down is, is when you're in contact with what's happening. So then conjoining this with the dream is you know, don't, don't give these heavy burdens and darkened feelings a place to land, right? So you feel them, but you don't feed them. And therefore, you know, they fundamentally can't hurt you because you're not appropriating them. Um, and, another, you know, again, so many studies here, uh, other studies have shown that the people will electively do something that makes them feel bad if they have the option of feeling bad or feeling nothing. You've probably heard that study where people were given the option of giving themselves electrical shocks or basically just being bored. And they, they found, I don't know exactly what the stats are, but they found that a lot of people actually preferred the electric shocks than the boredom. I mean, how revelatory is that? So um, with that said, let's do our two core meditations and I'll do my little riff on my book and then we'll open it up like we usually do if you're here for the first time. I blah, blah, blah for a few minutes. And then really the heart of what we do is just have conversations with you all, take your questions and the like. So our two main practices, um, and I did not forget about the crying meditation. I, I promise you, um, I will get to this or I'll share the information with Joseph. And, and Joseph cries easier than I do. So I might just have Joseph do this one for you all. <laughs> so uh, one breath meditation. And then our anti-complaint meditation, um, because that's definitely in line with so many things that are depressing and worth complaining about. So during the course of one inhalation, one exhalation, we just connect. Literally just kind of drop the storyline, what's called propancha proliferation, conceptual proliferation. And then just simply one meditation session, one breath. That's it, my meditation session today is done, completed, awesome. And then the other one in the spirit of my opening little um, rant here is this really powerful practice for me. Whenever you feel the urge to complain, right? You're feeling low, you're feeling depressed, you're feeling whatever, 
ask yourself kind of analytic investigation. It's a form of Vipassana, actually. Ask yourself, what am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? And then stay with that. Stay with that, but don't feed it. That's, again, there's near enemies lurking everywhere. You stay with it, but you don't feed it. Feel it, but don't feed it. That's the trick, because usually what we do, you know, ego likes to feed on this bad news, fake news, whatever. Usually we land on a feeling like that and we proliferate. So if you feel the urge to complain, um, and poof, no shortage of grist for that mill, ask yourself, investigate, which invites, what does it do? It invites a reverse of the usual trajectory, which is an out-of-body experience. Complaining is an out-of-body experience where you're losing connection with your body, with your feelings, and you're basically FedExing your consciousness into your proliferating mind and then griping. You feel that tendency, capture it, don't, don't criticize it. Notice it, smile at it, and then reverse. Wake down, touch into what you're feeling in your body and stay with that. Just because it feels crappy, it, it doesn't mean anything, like so what? That does not create karma. Feeling crappy does not create karma. Maybe the fruition of karma, but it doesn't create karma. And actually staying with that, being with that is the first stage in purifying karma, purifying bad habit. You just stay with it to establish a new relationship to it. So, you know, I keep um, sharing this one over and over and over because we need to hear it over and over and over because it goes against our default mode network. You know, our usual default is, you know, like a fighter pilot hitting the eject button out of a plane that's going down, right? Ping, I'm out of here, out of the uncomfortable sensation in your body, into the kind of asepsis of the head. It's very interesting. The brain literally does not feel, literally. I mean, how interesting is that? This is why neurosurgeons can do, I mean, and they've done some amazing studies. The skull's sliced open, the patient brought back awareness and they're doing all this stuff in the person's brain and the person's not feeling anything because the brain in itself is insensate. I mean, how interesting is that? So we eject out of our feeling bodies into our insensate heads as an escapist um, tendency. So that's my like, kind of rant and riff on that. I wanted to finish, as I promised, um, the last little section, um, part three of my book, which is advertised back here. Um, and then we'll open it up to everybody. So I mentioned the first two parts of the book were um, first parts on emptiness, second parts on luminosity. Third part is finding support in science, the illusion of externality, which is basically a, a twofold trajectory. It's a way to lend credibility from a Western scientific philosophical point of view to the some, sometimes outrageous proclamations put forth in the first two parts of the book. So it's basically an attack on duality. The illusion of externality is the illusion of duality. And so in many, many ways, this entire book, again, circumambulates this core non-dualistic, non-foundational principle. And so I have to say, when I wrote this part of the book, in many ways, this was my favorite part um, because I was doing just a ton of research, which I love to do. I'm, I'm a total nerd. And I was just reading everything I could get my mitts on, which is a lot. 
And um, the different points of view from neuroscience, from cognitive science, from developmental psychology, from evolutionary biology, from physics, from integral theory, I mean, you name it, any place I could find some support, I would go for it. And um, in this book, I go after, I don't go after it, these disciplines go after it, I just use their help, some of the fundamental axioms or givens um, of our life. You know, the given, the, the illusion, that the, the so-called fact, which is fake news, that I exist in here. No, you don't. It just appears that way. The world exists out there independently of me. No, it doesn't. That's non-lucidity at, at its deepest level. It just appears that way. So the whole book is about bringing appearance in harmony with reality, absolute truth and resonance with relative truth. And so I really love this part of the book. And I have to tell you, I found it um, just startling when I was reading this research. Some of the stuff that, that I dug, dug up, I mean, I had to read it over and over and over to, to let it soak in, which is parenthetically one reason why I, I riffed on this idea, I got this idea of actually doing a book study group. Because the, the revolutionary implication, implications of these discoveries, this will rock your world. I mean, the illusion of will, the illusion of time, um, the illusion of solid, lasting, and independent which is one way to unpack duality. Um, duality is that which we project, impute, confer to be solid. It ain't solid, it just appears that way. Physics will tell you that. Lasting, it's not lasting. Psychology, neuroscience will, will tell you that. Independent, this is the most interesting one. It's not independent. It's completely inextricably bound up to this. And so what I call the holy, the unholy trinity, of solid, lasting, and independent, those things that we take as axiomatic, those things that we actually take as givens. And here I have to throw this into the lucid, non-lucid um, kind of uh, charter, in that th this is a way to look at dream signs in the deepest philosophical spiritual sense. And what I mean by this is that in the world of, dr of lucid dreaming, you, we do what are called state checks, you know, you, you do a jump thing, or like this, this morning when I was doing my um, dream, there were a couple of instances when I really couldn't tell, am I, am I awake or am I dreaming? And so I, I just did a bunch of my usual dream tests. One was I put my hand up and I tried to put my finger through my palm. And it was so cool, I've done this a hundred times. And of course in the dream, my finger just went all the way through my palm. And it was like, yeehaw, I must be dreaming. It was just awesome. And so in the world of, of lucid dreaming, so hang with me for just a second. In the lucid world of lucid dreaming, when you conduct a state check, which is do this or jump up and down, there's hundreds of them. And you confer that, or you, you confirm that you're awake. You're like, I can't get my thumb, I can't get my hand through here, I must be awake. In the world of lucid dreaming, that's as awake as you can get. Not so in the world of dream yoga. And the way, this, the way these dream signs get really interesting in the, in the world of dream yoga is that the very things that we take as givens, um, axiomatic, um, Ken Wilber talks about it as the myth of the given. The very things that we take as givens actually become dream signs, that you're asleep. <laughs> 
from a world of dream yoga. So how interesting is that? So the very, and this is a, a really important point that definitely separates dream yoga from lucid dreaming, is that the same dream signs that you establish in the world of lucid dreaming to confer, confirm that you're awake are actually the ones now that become dream signs that you're still asleep in the world of dream yoga. See what I'm saying? So in other words, if you think, like right now, just look, look around, right? If you think that world out there, that wall, that screen, me, is separate from you, that's a dream sign. You're dreaming spiritually. If you think this pencil is solid, lasting, you're dreaming. And so, well, is this revelatory or what? It means, man, we are dreaming all the time. This is what it means to be asleep in the spiritual sense. These are the things we take for granted that are actually um, dream signs on the world of, of dream yoga. And so I go after these dream signs to, to basically show us, man, we are asleep if we think this is the way the world is. And obviously this is a pretty radical assault because you're going at the very foundations of what ego confers to be reality itself. It's not, it's not real. That's what it means to be illusory, it's not real. It's appearing, but it's not real. So this, this section of the book um, is not so easy to digest <laughs> because these kernels of truth will give you know, the egoic uh, agenda real indigestion. Um, what do you mean, what do you mean time doesn't exist? What do you mean uh, the uh, sense of uh, free will is an illusion? What do you mean that memory doesn't really exist? So that's why you have to take your time and go through this. And, and I, I still reread this part of the book and I still just like, whoa, this is like amazing stuff. So the one that I go at, at the most is the illusion of independence that fundamentally as the physicist John Wheeler put it, student of Einstein, there is no out there, out there. That's probably the greatest of all the axioms that there's something there. There isn't, it just appears that way. That's what it means to be non-lucid. That's what it means to be asleep. So a big part of the third, chapter, third section is about dissolving, seeing through the illusion of what's called representationalism, which is this, this you know, given, falsely given view that there's a world out there, sometimes called the camera correspondence theory or camera theory of perception. There's a world out there and I run around in here like a little camera and I snap, you know, I snap, I, I literally, literally represent that. Uh, no, you don't. No, you don't. You co-create it. Um, and so I start one chapter with this line that we are all creative geniuses at a level that we, we can hardly, in fact, we don't comprehend. We co-create. We don't create this reality. Again, that's solipsism. You only do that in a real my time dream. You dramatically co-create. Every physical sense is actually... Um, as Donald Hoffman puts it, perception is creation. You don't represent anything. Basically, if you think you do, you're just representing your ignorance. <laughs> you just don't know better. Um, and so this is a really, really cool part of the book where you know, fundamentally this, this particular quote, which has been attributed to a dozen different people, we don't see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. And so there's this whole long riff on projection, um, imputation, how it is that we take what I call the King Midas qualities 
we, everything we touch with our sense faculties turns into um, our version of gold, ego's version of gold, which is what? Solid, lasting, and independent. Um, so there's obviously a ton to say here. I also come back, and I think I mentioned this last week in, in when I was riffing a little bit about the luminosity part of the book. I also come back to this um, reference of reality is made of light. And by the way, this is also a, a really juicy conversation I had with David Loy because I, I brought to him, David, you know, let's talk a little bit about the relationship of mind, light, and appearance. And um, so I go into this quite a bit in the book where both according to uh, um, the Vajrayana traditions, Nandual, Shaiva Tantra, and also quantum physics, the world, and this is not a metaphor, this is literal, the world is made of frozen light. Um, what the physicists do, and I'll read a quote from David Bohm in a second. The physicists talk about world made as, of frozen light. The wisdom traditions would definitely agree, but the frozen light isn't ontological, it's epistemological. The frozen light, what, what David Lawyer writes about is light objects, that isn't even real. That's actually just the light of the mind. And so this is where it just gets beyond profound and has a deep connection to both dream yoga and sleep yoga, luminosity yoga. So, I mean, obviously there's just a ton to talk about here, but I just wanted to read two quotes and then we can open it up for some conversation. So again, this is from David Bohm. Many of you may know his work, really amazing, um, sensitive thinker. Mass is, a, I don't think I read this last week. If I did, I apologize. Um, there's a number of quotes in this book from him. Mass is a phenomenon of connecting light rays. Now this is a physicist, this is not a mystic, right? Mass is a phenomenon of connecting light rays, which go back and forth, sort of freezing them into a pattern. So matter, as it were, is condensed or frozen light. Even Einstein had a hint of this. You could say that we, when we come to light, I mean, what an interesting double entendre that is, right? When we come to light, bringing unconscious processes into light of consciousness, that's my interjection, <clears throat> we are coming to the fun fundamental activity in which existence has its ground. Light in its generalized sense, not just ordinary light, is the means by which the entire universe unfolds into itself. And then he goes on to say, particles are just ripples on this vast ocean of light, <clears throat> end quote. And then he says one last thing that I riff on, how this light that's out there, what is its connection to light in here or the light of the mind? So this is what David says, the mind, not just the universe, <clears throat> the mind may have a structure similar to the universe, and in the underlying movement we call empty space, there is actually a tremendous energy movement. That, uh, uh, the particular forms which appear in the mind may be analogous to the particles. And getting to the ground of the mind might be felt as light, end quote. Uh, it's an amazing statement, completely, utterly resonant with the non-dual wisdom traditions. And so this notion of light, uh, I mean, it's embedded literally in the entire spiritual trajectory, enlightenment, it's foundational. So one of the things that actually, in my opinion, constitutes the awakening or the enlightened state is, is literally 
saying that everything is made of light, everything is therefore the radiance of the mind itself. That's all there is. Um, so obviously so much more to say here, but this is the stuff that the third part of the book is about. Um, and this is the kind of thing, you know, that we're gonna really unpack in huge detail when we start doing this book study group. So one last pitch for that. <laughs> It's coming up. But um, that's as much as I want to say for today. Um, I think Andy might have one question or two, and then we'll open it up to you all. So. All right, great. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, first question is from Florian. Quote, the absence of darkness is not light, end quote. What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it depends on, you know, light is a polysemous term, right? I use this as one of my favorite um, new terms of the last year, polysemous and multivalent, which means that a particular word, and we, we had this little conversation last year, I think last year, last week, when Joseph talked about shentong and empty of other, using the word other in several different contexts. So it depends on the usage of your term light. From a physical point of view, th there's one way to address it using that stance. In, I think, a more fundamental stance, everything is light, even darkness. Um, and in fact, as my friend Chris Wallace says, one of my favorite lines from his book, Recognition Sutras, I think it comes from there. He fundamentally says there is no darkness, darkness within and my interjection, darkness without. There's just light unseen. I mean, that's an amazing comment. So your question has to be refined depending on whether we're talking about literal, physical light or epistemological light of the mind. If you're talking about light of the mind, that's all there is, literally. There's nothing else. That's it, period. Full stop, that's it. Whether we see that or not is what, you know, differentiates us from Buddhas. A Buddha is one who is woken up, enlightened, and sees that everything is just the light. And this is now light of the mind, of which external light is not the same, nor is it different, right? It's not the same, nor is it different. Um, and so, to really answer that question, I would have to ask you, and I suspect you're asking it from a physical point of view. Personally, I'm much more interested in, in the epistemological or kind of spiritual point of view. And in that case, everything is light, even darkness. So that's what comes to mind. That's what comes to light. So there was the one question, Andy, that came in about healing. Actually, there were two questions about healing. Sure, yeah, I have that first one is from Morgan. For the last few years, I've been doing healing energy work when I become lucid in dreams and have experienced definite shifts in waking life, all beneficial. Recently, I had a lucid dream in which I did energy work around my gut area and woke up extremely nauseous, which is not at all normal for me. I can't say if this was a good or bad experience, but it leads me to wonder, since I can heal myself in my lucid dreams, can I make myself ill or do harm? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, to both. <laughs> Anything that has the power to cure, you know, lucid dreaming. And, and my friend Ryan um, Hurd, who I interviewed way back, he writes a, a beautiful riff on this in his um, magnificent compiled anthology that he did with Kelly Buckley on lucid dreams and consciousness. He, he writes quite extensively, well, not extensively, but write cogently about just this process, that that which has the power to cure um, in fact, if it's, if it's uh, used inappropriately, it does have the power to hurt. And so this is a bit important. It's a little bit of the kind of the asterisk, small, you know, amendment charter for lucidity practices altogether. That if these practices are done properly, 
um, and in fact, let me just throw this into the mix, this way my mind works. This sort of question was once asked to Father Thomas Keating. Um, it, was a really, it was a very interesting dialogue, a very perky dialogue he actually did in public with Ken Wilber 15 years ago. I was there. And somebody asked him a very simple question, similar question about this in relation to meditation. And then I'll come back to, to specifics of what you were asking, where this person was saying, oh, there's you know, the possibility of this with meditation. There's the possibility of this side effect, blah, 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 blah. And Thomas Keating you know, addressed these. And then at the end, he said, let's put it this way. It's far more damaging not to meditate. Um, so yes, it, in this case, it's far more damaging for most people to not engage in these lucidity practices. But with that said, these practices, like with anything, they're not for everybody. And anything can be abused. I mean, even oxygen that we need to live with, you can hyperventilate, pass out. Um, even water, you can hyperhydrate. So anything can be abused. Now, the deeper question here for me is, and this ties into another one that was sent, that, um, you know, the propensity for these nocturnal practices to work with healing. So let's put as on, on the side, anything that has the power to cure, it's, it's uh, not only, you know, the, the, what comes to mind here just briefly again is also the relationship between placebo and nocebo, right? Placebo is using the power of the mind to cure. Nocebo is using the power of the mind to hurt. In fact, I, a reference in the book, really interesting incident, instance of uh, what's called noct uh, sudden unexpected nocturnal death syndrome, SUNS, um, where a group of Laotian men started mysteriously dying in their sleep. And a very interesting um, professor started doing some uh, epidemiological work and discovered that these people were basically scaring themselves to death, literally. The mind was literally killing them because of their belief systems. So the, the point for me here on this one is that if, and the data is not in conclusively, um, not by a long shot, but even Stephen LeBerge and other scientists write about the, the potentialities, the potential of lucid dreaming to affect cure. Um, and what, what Stephen does is if he, if I remember properly, he draws on the work of uh, Carl Simonton, who's a cancer researcher who showed using processes of just visual imagery, the cancer patients um, who are undergoing chemo and radiation therapy were able to increase their survivability rates by something like 50% by augmenting their treatment with visualization. Well, when are the powers of imagery and visualization more powerful than in the dream state? They're not. I mean, that is like, that is the ultimate visualization. I mean, this is why it's used in conjunction with what's called generation stage practice and meditation. It's the ultimate visualization where your visualization becomes your reality. And so the implications, again, the book's open, but the implications are really provocative. You know, if you visualize a part of your body that is now afflicted, if you visualize that in a lucid dream um, is healed, bathed in light and healed, to what extent can it heal your physical body? I personally, as, as just conjecture, think there's no, there's no question, that, but it will benefit. And even based on the kind of phenomenology that the outer body is a manifestation expression of the subtle body, I mean, this is the basis of things like acupuncture and things, you know, you're working with subtle body processes there to affect outer body transformations. And so long-winded answer to a really rich array or a richly arrayed question 
that um, I have personally have no doubt that you can use lucid dreaming eventually for sure to cure or at least assist in the healing of the outer body. It makes so much sense to me. But scientifically, you know, it, this takes some really interesting studies. Um, and maybe we'll be able to chat with somebody in that club who can have more answers on that than, than me. But that's what comes to mind. Good question. Great. Uh, this was a, a chat comment from Jillian, wondering if there are page number references for the David Baum material um, in the Dreams of Light book. David Baum, that's great. That's a nice Freudian slip. The <laughs> David Baum book. <laughs> Uh, yes, for sure. The book is heavily referenced. Um, it's not an academic tome, um, but it's, it's academic in the sense that it's reasonably rigorous. There's a lot of references, a lot of footnotes. Most of what I drew on was from, I believe, was from his, his, paper, his paper, his book called Wholeness in the Implicate Order. But he also did some really interesting conversations with Krishnamurti, one book called, I believe it's called The Ending of Time or something like that. And then there's a couple other places, um, conversations with sages and scientists that I drew from. Um, so Gil Rinpoche refers to David Bohm. So yeah, um, he's getting a lot of traffic. I know there's recently been some videos and documentaries that came out about this guy appropriately. So he's really legendary figure and very open-minded, rarely uniquely open-minded physicist. Um, but in short, tons of references in the book, yep. All right, let's go to some of the raised hands and uh, we'll start with Suzanne. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Hi. Uh, part of your Boston area fan club. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Thank you for introducing yourself again. I appreciate that. So, um, I, I want to talk about that study that you mentioned earlier. I think it was mm -hmm. the, the Times about the mm -hmm. uh, folks that uh, could choose to either sit still and do nothing or. Yeah, you've, pro you've probably read it, haven't you? It's amazing. Well, in that study, there seemed to be a, a, a major gender difference in the uh -huh. people who That's chose. Right. It, it was mostly males who chose right. to shock themselves. So I wonder, number one, what would you make of that? And number two, and I don't know if it was an American study, if it was mostly American cohort or not. But um, the other thing is, I was thinking because of that, um, wouldn't it be great if if we had a general acceptance of teaching meditation in school at a no young kidding. age. No kidding. And, huh? and wouldn't that make a huge difference in how people reacted in the world? Yeah, well, let me, let me talk about the latter part first and then the study. I, I, could, I, yeah, but I couldn't agree more with you, Suzanne. It's, it's, um, but good luck with that. You can't even get yoga in school. Right. Um, it, it's so sad, you know, I, I'm not casting any criticism or dispersions against other traditions, religions, and whatnot. But, you know, the conservative population is pretty conservative. And the minute you bring things like yoga, I mean, what could be, yoga is just stretching, you know, until you do the more refined stuff, yeah, then it becomes a spiritual path. But as you know, you, you can't even get a yoga into school without people raising their arms. And, and meditation, I mean, the only way you're going to get it in is with the brilliance of the work of people like John Kabat-Zinn, who was prescient enough 30 years ago to say, hey, let's just strip all the, the jargon away and let's talk about this as mindfulness-based stress reduction. I mean, it was, it was a stroke of genius, stealth help. 
let's sneak this stuff in without you know tripping people up because the minute you you say one of these buzzwords you're done um so uh, yeah you know this goes so far that as you know in the tulku tradition this is one reason they try to identify tulku so early so that there's less detox involved so that you can bring them into an environment especially when they're such a formative germative they're like stem cells right if you can put a stem cell in the right environment from ground zero you're going to get really healthy growth if you take that stem cell and put it in in a, in a nefarious environment you're going to get cancer well we're we're growing a lot of cancer cells um, because of our cancerous environments and so uh, Tim Ryan politically wrote a book called Mindful Nation. So there, you know, it, this is a slow, slow growth thing. It's a little bit like, um, I can't remember who the physicist was who said it, but it was one of the great lines in, in the, the history of the philosophy of science where he said, he said, science advances funeral by funeral. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just, that's just brilliant. You know, we think there are these big paradigmatic changes via Thomas Kuhn, that sort of thing, yeah. But, you know, this type of growth, unfortunately, because it's so deeply embedded, it, it's gonna change funeral by funeral. Uh, but that doesn't mean we should, you know, and again, wonderful, this is also what, what I discussed with David Loy. Um, my conversation with him at the end was really very personally pertinent because I was talking to him about just this sort of thing. It's so easy to get this, you know, depressed and despair and like, what can we do? Nothing's happening. And David spoke in the most elegant terms about just, we simply do it because it's the right thing to do. Um, and so with that in mind, if you have the ability to affect that kind of thing, I mean, all I can say is just go for it. Um, if that's what you're asking along those lines. In terms of the study, the male thing, yeah, I didn't want to throw that figure out, but that's definitely the case that more men than women were interested in, in distracting themselves with pain than women. I can only guess, um, you know, the kind of macho thing. I, I don't really know why it's more men than women. Um, your guess is as good as mine on that, but that, that was a pretty salient part of that study, that uh, generally it was more men that were interested in shocking themselves out of boredom. So I'm not really sure. You know, if Joseph or somebody else has a, a comment to say about that, who know this study, I'm all up, um, up for hearing it, but I can't really speak with any authority on that. Okay, nice to see you, thank you. Thanks, Suzanne. Uh, next with the audio will be Alan. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, there's two Alans there. This is Alan Siegel from Albany, New York. Hi, Alan Siegel from Albany, New York. I like Albany. This is the first um, first time I've done this. And, oh, uh, welcome, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, I have a few theories. Um, nothing is absolute. No thing is absolute. Everything else is relative. It's kind of simple, very simple. Brought on the, the, the relativity, obviously brought on by the mind and the ego attachment to form. As you, you've talked about, as far as the dream state, you know, the awakened state is nothingness, absolute nothingness. Um, uh, uh, you know, as you just said, you said in the beginning today, you know, the, you mentioned the idea of a lucid dream state. Um, you know, and eternity, I guess you know this, right? Eternity is here now or nowhere, as nowhere man, like the Beatles used to say uh, in their, one of their songs, nowhere man. Um, so I like to refer to that. 
And of course, imagination is the creative aspect of absolute being, where thought is a destructive aspect of relative human nature. So that's, I don't know, that's, you yeah. know, I, yeah. Yeah, nicely said. Well, a couple of things. Thought inherently is not destructive. Um, inappropriately related to thought is destructive. Thought in itself, Alan, is just the natural play of the mind. Utterly, completely harmless, inconsequential, self-liberates. So I think that's important to throw into the mix because um, a lot of, I think, misunderstandings around non-conceptuality. Non-conceptuality, in fact, even in the lineage supplication, grant your meditation, grant your blessing so that my mind may be free from conception. I, I talk to translators about that. It's a slightly um, unfortunate translation because you're not trying to get rid of um, concept per se. You're trying to get rid of proliferation, what's called propancha. That's important because otherwise then we develop this kind of adversarial relationship to thought, to the play of the mind, which in itself is, is inconsequential. It's harmless. The other thing I might say, Alan, is just a point of clarification from my perspective is that there is, while I definitely agree with you about the nothingness thing, um, I always, and this is just my personal bias, I always append um, when I say something like that, nothingness is really no thingness. Because otherwise, um, and this ties into what you're saying at the outset about relativity, um, no thingness means, in fact, Robert Thurman talks about emptiness as the kind of the Buddhist theory of relativity in a kind of Einsteinian sense that um, it's not nothingness, it's no thingness. Um, and so I would just throw that in as a, as a maybe perhaps as a, my bias towards clarifying that. But in short, what you're saying, I agree with it. I think it's a great contribution. So welcome aboard and thanks for sharing that. Thank okay. you very much. Yeah, take care. Okay. Thanks, Alan. All right, and next with the audio will be Myra. Myra. I'm keeping it simple because I'm saving my deep ones for the book club. <laughs> I can't uh, I wait. I'm going to be ambushed. I love it. Yeah, especially because I think many times, and this is just a statement, uh, that we keep trying to de I mean, talk about what does not exist. And, and, um, and we get that it's almost like an effervescent um, nature of the way that the bubbles are going to come up or the images are going to manifest. We, we don't know the order. Um, and that it's more like a liminal state where we see all these figures and, and they come from somewhere. And when you get really addicted to those kind of sensations, it's very playful. But, um, but at the same time, we know that in a way we are kind of forced to see things a certain way because yeah. our history, our culture, our commonality of the conversations that we have here. So that's what I would like to go in the future, not today. But, um, but I think that we, because we keep the reifying, but we forget how is that we kind of, in a way, it's not just self-help. And if I visualize it strong enough and I meditate two hours a day and I have all my ideas the right way, I all of a sudden can crack it up and, and, and see how relative life is. So, and I think that sometimes that gives kind of the conversation interesting. But you often talk about a dream, a lucid dream that may have lasted one hour, a half hour. And I always wonder, how do people know? Because I do like that technique too of wake back to bed. 
But how do you know how the length of the dream? Yeah. I've been using an app to see the cycles and try right. to predict a little bit of the rims. But um, how accurate are, are those apps? And how do you know how the length of the dream? Yeah, I can't speak to the accuracy of the apps. Um, that I just don't know about. I, I'm generally a little bit, just my nature, I'm a little bit skeptical from, from most of these apps. Um, for just you know some obvious reasons you know i mean how scientific are they how much are you know what's their motivation mm -hmm. to be empirical and rigorous or to make money well you know where the answer is to that so i can't speak to yeah. that stephen laberge you know again who's the main um, researcher in the world on this topic he's actually done studies on this myra and i you know he's done so many that i actually don't know where i got the data from this it could have been from his first two books, Lucid Dreaming and Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming, where he talks about this. But I do also have to say that I have since then read studies, and again, this is the way science works, that didn't necessarily confirm that initial data. Um, so I, I am not a sleep scientist. Um, I'd have to revisit that study to see how Stephen actually did that and how these new scientists are perhaps even challenging that. But these are pretty clever people, right? Um, and so, when they make statements like this, it's one of the great things I, I deeply respect about the scientific agenda is there tends to be a little bit of rigor behind what they proclaim. So um, I could dig it up. It doesn't come off the top of my head. No, where that data came from, but uh, I know it's out there. I'm not, um, I make a lot of stuff up, but I'm not making that thing up. <laughs> so and yeah. When does that comment about healing? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 you, please. I'm done. Um, I think... I think that was a long time ago, one of the first Deepak Chopra before he was the famous man that he was here in terms of healing. Um, he had some sort of study that says, uh, I'm very interested because you know what happened with my vision, but um, uh, that in addition to um, there is an element of the unexpected healing that happened there be by thought or by uh, whatever method it did happen. And it happened that the most common thing among those people that were healed was a sense of, of faith of some sort faith. and a okay. sense of surrendering nice. that they really were not attached to the result. Uh, yeah. There was a sense of surrendering that was very important in one of the most common uh, commonalities in people that heal unexpectedly, there be cancer or whatever the healing was. And I found that curious. And Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I think that comes from Quantum Healing, which was one of his first books, which, uh, which I actually quite appreciated. He's, the guy's written like 80 since then. But isn't that uh -huh. interesting? I, I find that very interesting as well. And, and part of, I mean, again, just pure conjecture, Myra, but, but what comes to mind for me is that, you know, <clears throat> when you think about healing, the phenomenology of healing altogether, I, I mean, I work with this in the clinic, so I, I see this with surgeries and the like. Healing is a form of remembering, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when, you're, when you're cut apart and you fall apart and you're stitched together, th there's a type of memory that takes place, the innate memory of, of, of the body to heal itself. And, and, you know, on a deeper spiritual level, that's also true deep spiritual healing, uh, you know, is remembrance, um, reunification with, with the non-dual absolute. And, and so therefore, when one surrenders, one relaxes, in a certain way, you're getting out of the way. Um, and this is why, interestingly enough, so much of healing takes place when we are out of the way, i.e., when we're sleeping. 
Um, if, if we didn't sleep, we would die. The less you sleep, the more sick you get, the earlier you die. So that's also that type of surrender that you're talking about is also analogous to the kind of biological surrender that takes place when we fall asleep, where you get the fracturing, discursive, separating, bifurcating conscious mind, get it offline, get it out of the way. And uh, there seems to be a, a natural healing that takes place when just that fracturing aspect of our, our um, body mind is just offline. So I, yeah, I, I've read that as well. I also find that very, very interesting, Myra, but that's what comes to mind. Thank you. <laughs> that kind of thing, you open, you surrender, you remember. And I think that's just where healing takes place, right? Thank you. Cool, nice to see you again. Nice to see you. Thanks, Myra. So Andy, before we take the next question, Let's pause for a second. Let's all do an, another one breath meditation. I'll do my one gulp practice because I, I have to, I tend to get a little speedy in the Q&A. So this is as much for me as it is for you. That's awesome. I got two meditation sessions in today. Cool. Great. Thanks, Andrew. And uh, all right, next up with the audio will be Peter. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Peter. Um, this, this question uh, arose in my mind a couple of weeks ago when you talked about the kind of a correspondence, uh, not strict course, uh, correspondence, but uh, Something of a correspondence between quantum physics and and um, and spiritual uh, understanding about emptiness. Mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. I recall, yep. yeah, you, you may recall. And I re I remember you were saying at some point there was a question about you know what happens when what when one does not correspond or there's a kind of a contradiction between the science yep. and the spirituality. And I think you you perhaps said that. Uh, you you might go with the science like if there was a question i'll come back to that yeah good point i'll come back to that okay yeah so in in regards to that whole discussion um i i gave it i, I gave it some thought and especially now after what you mentioned concerning light so i'm thinking about the um i wrote this down actually and okay now that i read it i think i don't know if this is going to make much sense but maybe i'll give it a shot anyway okay so uh, I wrote regarding the equivalence of the Buddhist concept of emptiness and the scientific perceptions of quantum physics. Is there a notion here um, of both um, in both of these views of absence? That is the absence of matter, absence of waves, absence of particles, absence of radiation, indeed absence of anything um, conceivable. In other words, the point it here is is, or in fact, the question is. Is absence the point of emptiness? No. Well, yes and no. Um, huge questions, my friend. So is absence the point? Well, depends on, again, absence in reference to what? Um, if it's absence to reification, absence of um, conceptuality, absence of conceptual proliferation, if it's absence in the sense of negation, as it's used in both the Hindu tradition of the via negativa and also um, um, Western philosophical thought, then yes, it's absence in that regard. 
That's true. But if I want to say a couple of things from what you said earlier, and this is actually a pretty important thing because, um, at least in my opinion, because it's very easy, um, and I hope I wasn't conveying this, to fall into some type of imperialistic approach to the prowess of the Western scientific method. And I think this is a colossal mistake. Um, because even though, you know, the, what we should pay homage to, what I try to pay homage to, is the scientific method. Um, scientific conclusions are a different story. For instance, like scientific reductionism is not the same as science. Alan Wallace helped me with this. Um, because I, I was running into some conflations around this issue again. So the real genius is the scientific method and what it discloses. The perversion is where, where scientists can take science and then you know, impute it, project it onto all kinds of issues that may, are fundamentally not scientific. And so in that regard, we have to be very careful to avoid any type of absolutism, any type of colonialization, colonization, imperialism from any discipline, including even science, because then science, the nobility of science flips into the ignobility, the ignoble scientism, where if, if something doesn't fit into the scientific charter is categorically dismissed. That's not at all what I'm saying. And so when someone like His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, and this is where I was echoing my statement, that if science says something that contradicts Buddhism, we should capitulate to science, we have to be really careful the way that's interpreted. Because for instance, if, if um, uh, a spiritual practitioner somehow claims, this is an extreme example, but if a spiritual practitioner somehow claims that the earth is flat, and then science comes along and says, no, it's not, then we capitulate to science because it's not flat. But if the science is, is not doing, you know, um, the kind of studies in the domain where the spiritualists are actually doing their studies, then we don't really need to listen to science because they're, they're, you know, they're not bringing the right um, kind of apparatus to the processes of inquiry. And this is super important because, you know, otherwise, I mean, this is such a huge topic. Otherwise, it's so easy to say, oh, physics proves mysticism. You know, this, this, this whole thing that started back with the Tao of physics and the dancing wooly masters and all this kind of stuff. You know, there's a difference uh, between um, analogy and the real thing. And so there are very powerful analogs to the scientific approach and their discoveries of their reality. In other words, their emphasis on physicality, materiality, and, and um, that, that domain. There are correlations between that and what spiritual practitioners do, but they're not the same. And that's why you cannot say that physics proves mysticism, because then what happens when physics changes? Does your mysticism change? So I'm not sure if that's entirely what you're asking, but it, we have to be really careful around these types of um, associations because there, there are tons of hornet's nests here that people can get stuck in. Um, they're not necessarily equivalent. And so when, when someone like Sergei Rinpoche says, we can gain tremendous insight into the nature of the empty nature of reality by studying things like quantum mechanics, he is not saying that quantum mechanics proves emptiness as it's articulated in the Buddhist view. That's not the way I read it. What, you know, these are what are called sometimes called analog laws. Um, and the interesting thing with analog laws is you can fall into what are called category errors, where you use the discoveries of one domain and then you inappropriately superimpose them onto another. You can't do that. 
Um, so it's a really tricky, slippery issue, and I'm not sure that's totally everything that you're asking, Peter, but that's what comes to mind. And if it's not, throw me another question to clarify it. Does that help? Well, it, it begins to help. And then, and then when things begin to help and I think about it, then I think, oh, I'm confused again. <laughs> but uh, it worked, yeah. But, but I, I was thinking, as you spoke, I, I was thinking of the notion of inconceivability, like that which is inconceivable. You cannot conceive it. Like science doesn't deal with much of that. That's right, not at all. And they shouldn't. That, that's the realm of philosophers and mystics, exactly. Yeah, so when we think of when we think and and reflect on 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 emptiness, you know, the that notion. So are we are are we thinking are we like are we going going to ally science to that in some way and say, well no, that's not the domain of science, so therefore it has to remain at the domain of, of the Dharma, of Buddhism. And I I don't. I shouldn't be looking yeah. for for kind of quote material explanations of what emptiness is because I'll, I won't find that. You won't find it in science, and you shouldn't. And and this is you know Evan Thompson also writes about how this works the other way. You know his book Why I'm Not a Buddhist. You should read that because in that book he talks about these outrageous claims, and they're outrageous. They didn't seem that outrageous to me until um, Evan pointed out the, the you know kind of the the, the errors of of talking about Buddhism as a science, even a science of mind. He writes like, quite cogently in that book that you can't say that. And I would, I would refer you to that book to, to, to gain a deeper understanding of that type of refinement. With that said, you can still use analogously some of the insights from the scientific communities to the Buddhist communities. For instance, uh, a really powerful book that comes to mind along this line is Joanna Macy wrote a marvelous book called Mutual Causality and Buddhism in General Systems Theory. It's a masterpiece. That's the way to use the relationship between science and spirituality. So if you really wanna um, jump into this, I would strongly recommend both those books. Evan Thompson, Why I Am Not a Buddhist, um, Joanna Macy, Mutual Causality and Buddhism in General Systems Theory. The other thing that has to be thrown in here, Peter, is that when we're talking about emptiness, um, we're talking mostly about absolute truth. And again, the sciences don't work with absolute truth. <clears throat> Hard sciences works with relative truth. So right off the bat, you've got that interesting um, kind of differentiation to make. And so it's just, it's a, it's a deep philosophical topic um, that's not easy to paraphrase in a short period of time, but a lot has been written about it. And I think it's, it's really important to be aware of all the traps and all of the, you know, the, the easy um, and fallacious conclusions that we can come to when, and this is again, Dancing Willie Masters, Tao Physics. Well, they're saying this again, it's like this kind of multivalent idea. Well, they're talking about this, they're using the same words. The scientists are talking about that, they're using the same words, they must be talking about the same thing. No, they're not. No, they're not. Just because they're using the same word, they're using it in, in pretty disparate contexts. So it's just, it's a, one has to be very careful, I think, along these lines, because otherwise you can fall into traps, um, and you know, many, many people have done it, where somehow you think that, you know, you're, that science somehow proves certain aspects of spirituality and, and, and vice versa. And so um, it, it's just a, a, a big issue. Integral theory also very helpful here. That's another lens I would bring to the map. 
um, you know, that we have to really be kind of honest, humble, and accommodating of other worldviews, realizing their place, keen to get in their place, and not letting the prowess of one um, kind of tradition dominate others, which is, you know, that's just an egoic tendency that happens in scientism is one very damaging consequence of that. So that's what comes to mind. Yeah. Okay, my friend? Check out those books. They'll, you know, read, read Macy's book, read Evan Thompson's book. It'll help you a lot. Those are really powerful books. Yeah. Can I just ask finally, because you mentioned it today, you, you referred to, the, well, the phrase was uh, frozen light. Mm -hmm. So um, I was thinking, the f how can light be frozen? Isn't that a kind of a... a, it's a metaphor. It's, it's, a me it's a metaphor, yeah. But it's not, it doesn't mean like science is not becoming integral to... Uh, to, uh, to, to an understanding of uh, emptiness. Well, again, I, all I can refer you to there is, is read the work of David Bohm um, and make the decisions for yourself. Because, you know, again, I don't, I'm not going to reread that entire quote, but if you listen to what I wrote or said earlier or you read it, um, there's some pretty interesting analogs there as well, right? So yeah. this is, you know, um, just... What, what can I say? Just, you know, there, there may be powerful intimations of connectivity. We just have to be, bottom line is we just have to be very, very careful, in my opinion. Okay. Okay. Thanks, bud. Thank Good you. Stuff. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. Uh, next with the audio will be Ted. Ted of TEDx. Hi, Andrew. I, before I ask my question, I have to say, when you were talking about your lucid dream last night, it reminded me of a terrible movie with Keanu Reeves called Little Buddha. Oh, I remember uh, that. Yeah, that was, a Martin, that was a Martin Martin Scorsese film. I remember that. Totally. Where, where the Buddha on the final yeah. night of enlightenment was sitting under the... That was one of the parts that I, I, I thought was fairly w well done. And that's right. That's right. He's sitting under the Bodhi tree and all these Maras are coming at him. Mara is sending all this, you know, women and food and drink and, and the buddha just sat there calmly he obviously hadn't seen bruce lee movies but i remember uh, that i remember that scene best scene in the movie actually yeah yeah, yeah cool only, only good scene but anyway um first of all i'm really looking forward to the study group i'm i'm now on chapter seven or eight and oh cool thank you my friend trying to go through it but would you and maybe executive summary of the final what i have always studied the final three consciousnesses you talk about eight <laughs> and then there's a ninth well it depends on it depends on the scholar yeah right and so it seems like when you talk about the eight the eighth that the storehouse and the clear light are combined in no. one no, that's the ninth. So yeah, this again, um, I'll say a little bit about now, Ted, and then obviously when we get to that part in the book, you know, there's two entire chapters devoted to this. Um, so I'll say more about that when we get to the study group. But briefly, yeah, you know, it comes from the Yogacara tradition. The eighth consciousness is not the same as the clear light mind. Um, that's the eighth consciousness is Alia Vijnana. Right. Clear light mind is more related to Alia Jnana. So that would be more, uh, just as a kind of technical stuff, but this would be more connected to what some scholars talk about as ninth consciousness. 
which is a little bit of a misnomer because it's not a consciousness at all. It's a wisdom. So um, that's why most people don't abide by the ninth consciousness tenet. But what it's pointing out to is that, you know, the eighth consciousness is the ground of samsara. It's not the ground of reality. It's not the ground of nirvana. Below that, paren, ninth consciousness, clear light mind, alia, jnana, that's the ground of the eighth and of everything that arises above it. Okay. So, and, uh, and a little bit about the seventh. Is, you know, I've always thought of that as sort of the klesha. Klishtama, so. It's literally called klishtamanas. Yes, it's the klesha mind, um, the so-called bad boy mind. Um, and really, it, again, each one of these consciousnesses, as, as you may remember in the book, um, they're not eight separate consciousnesses. Right. They're, just, they're basically eight aspects of one mind. Um, one confused dualistic mind has these eight aspects. And so the, the seventh consciousness, which again, even there, these are misnomers in a certain way because the eighth consciousness is really the first consciousness. I mean, it is from the eighth that the other seven arise. But a little technical, uh, basically in the briefest executive summary, as you asked, what happens with the seventh is, is basically the seventh consciousness is the mind's inability to recognize its nature. And so it's the source of madikpa, uh, ignorance. And so what the seventh consciousness does, it's a reflective, contractive, unconscious. The eighth and, seventh and eighth consciousness are constant, but unconscious. One through six are conscious, but inconstant. And so what the seventh does is it has two aspects, as you might suspect, it's so technical. One is outward facing, one's inward facing. But what it fundamentally does is it is that aspect of mind that fallaciously looks back upon its empty nature and mis literally mistakes that to be the sense of self. It then has really bad eyesight. It then does the same thing when it looks out. It mistakes one through six to be other. And so I'll, I'll probably leave it for now, um, Ted, because you know this is a big rabbit hole that we will go at uh, when we discuss these chapters in the book. But bottom line is the stuff um, is incredibly practical. It's super important, especially for nocturnal meditators. This is where we go when we go to sleep. This is, this is when one, one through six fall apart, we fall into seven and eight. And so it has tremendous applicability for nocturnal practitioners. But it's a massively important topic. And there are ways, you know, and I mentioned this in the book, when we work with practices like open awareness, you can bring the seventh consciousness into conscious awareness, then it transforms into the wisdom of equality. And then instead of discriminating, you see the quantumist nature of, of all that arises. I'll probably let that go for now because we're gonna have a little roadkill if I just keep talking about this. And for, you know, for people who are interested, obviously um, two or three chapters in the book are devoted to these topics. So, yeah, so one, one last quick question. Am I correct in that at the time of death, of the physical body that one through seven are they don't continue they implode yes they implode. But, yeah exactly everything just like when you fall asleep right one two three four five five senses implode to the sixth that's what happens when you lie down to go to sleep and then when you fall asleep even six goes offline falls into seven and eight same thing happens when you die then eventually it's you know the eighth that um, kind of bed of propensity, that bed of habituation, that bed of karma, that's what continues. And then one through seven lies latent within that, inexpressed. That then becomes expressed in the karmic bardo becoming, and then further into this. Um, so 
yeah, the 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 subs the uh, understanding the eight consciousnesses in my opinion, um, super helpful in terms of understanding the the death process and also the nocturnal practices altogether. So, Good. very helpful template to understand the mind at these levels. Good. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, bud. Nice to see you. Thanks, Ted. Um, next with the audio will be Norbu. Jeweled one. Okay, sorry, I just muted myself by accident. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Norbu. Uh, it, it just struck me when we were talking about, um, when you were discussing science, um, etc. Um, the scientific method really isn't that uh, cont to continually challenge conclusions. Say, say, you, you broke up for just a second. Just say it again. Oh, right. um, isn't the scientific method, um, legitimate scientific method, is co to continually challenge? If it's uh, legitimate. See, that's legitimate. the good. Yeah. But sometimes, as you know, scientists don't do good science because oh, they, yeah, no, they don't want to contest their own conclusions, right? That's why yeah. science progresses funeral by funeral. But in short, yeah. yes, that's right. Yeah. And uh, it, it just struck me that that's, that's very similar to sort of classic uh, Buddhist method of logic um, nagarjuna comes to mind absolutely you know so uh, there's that resonance there and i think that's very healthy and uh, i like that I like yeah that. so again there are lots of resonances you know there 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 are parallels between the scientific method and the empiricism of buddhism which is why so many people say Buddhism is the science of mind and which is why evan thompson comes in as a very sensitive philosopher and says you can't say that and his subtle refinements on that, I think we need to pay attention to them. So, but in short, again, there are parallels, right? They're, they're, they're the same, they're similar, but they're not the same. Yeah. So, is that okay. it? Yeah, 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 I just wanted to, it just struck me that, uh, you know, the scientific method basically is, uh, is sound. And, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and Buddhist logic is absolutely sound. Absolutely, absolutely. You conflate yeah. the two. Exactly. Yeah. And then, and, and also, again, just to reiterate, because it's important, we shouldn't just diss science. I mean, science has, there's tremendous elegance and beauty to the scientific method. Um, you know, some of the ways that method is then misappropriated to conclusions that have, I think, deep psychological impulses, you know, the, the kind of scientific reductionism, that's not inherent in science. That's the imposition of a hope system, in my opinion, a belief system, as a way fundamentally to develop what David Lloyd talks about, I, I, maybe I introduced this topic with him, is reality currency. That you know, we feel more real when we think that science can zip down to something that is real, but they can't do that, right? Mm. I mean, quantum mechanics has tried and, and you know, just that's, anyway, I won't go down the rabbit hole, but thanks for the comment, my friend. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a great uh, fan of Alan Wallace. I think he's- um, Oh, he's amazing. Very, very cogent when it comes to He's uh, one of the leading voices in the science um, kind of spirituality business for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice uh, to see you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Norbu. All right. And uh, next with the audio is Judith. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Hi, yep. Andrew. Hi. Um, Andrew, are the, I have two questions. Are the eight consciousnesses the same as the eight gates of spontaneous existences i don't think so you'd have to tell me what the eight gates of spontaneous existence well that's what i've been reading in 
the um, like luminous pump. emptiness, and I'm not quite what Sorry. Jessica talks about that. The yeah, yeah, and I was just wondering if there's the same thing. I, I don't remember that reference in her book, um, so I can't. I'd have to look it up again. Um, it, to me, it sounds more like she's talking about some kind of mandala principle thing. But I, I would have to okay. to look that look up it up. And see what she's okay. And this this question, Andrew, is pretty basic. But I found that time and time again, I read about the Dharmakaya and the Sambhakaya and the Nirmakaya, and I think, yes, I've got it. And then it comes up again. And I think, no, wait a minute. Um, do I really understand it? And I wonder if you could put it in some words that I could really get it. The three kayas? Yes. Okay, super simple. And it obviously okay. is not simple. <laughs> mm -hmm. Francesca, if you're reading Francesca's book, you know, her, she has two or three chapters on that, Judith, where she talks about this um, quite beautifully. Um, I don't remember the titles of the chapters, but she has one really beautiful chapter where she talks about the three kayas, the three levels of reality, the three bodies of a Buddha. I recommend you re read that several times, but in the briefest possible way. Um, oh yeah, and again, whether you're talking about three kayas as, you know, originally the three, the trikaya was a, uh, literally talked about the three bodies of a historical Buddha. Um, the gross outer body that we know and all the statues and forms, the subtle kind of um, body associated with Sambhogakaya. And then the very subtle indestructible body um, called Dharmakaya. There's a lineage of transmission associated with each of these. Um, the, the particular description had so much explanatory power. It was eventually extrapolated to describe the three manifestations of not just the body of the Buddha, but the body of reality, manifest reality altogether. So in the briefest, possible thumbnail sketch, um, Dharmakaya, formlessness, you know, literally body of truth, formlessness. On the complete other end of the spectrum, Nirmanakaya, fully manifest form, physicality. Sambhogakaya, everything in between, <laughs> which means it's the most populated. It's called the inner court in Shambhala Buddhism. It's the most populated of the, of the body, so to speak. But there, this is a, a, a hugely important, really big topic. Um, and as you probably know, in conjunction with the eight consciousnesses, the trikaya is another doctrinal template that is indispensable for understanding both the nocturnal practices, in my opinion, and the Bartlett trajectory. Because that's where we go when we die. That's, that's where we go when we fall into deep dreamless sleep, a process of differentiation from fully reified nirmanakaya into the dreamscape correlative to the Sambhogakaya, into the fully deep dreamless state um, correlative to uh, Dharmakaya. So again, just to prevent roadkill, I probably won't go down that rabbit hole too much further, but something like that. Okay. 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 Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, reread that chapter from Francesca. It's really good. She talks okay. about all this stuff with real elegance. Okay. All right. Maybe one or two more, Andy, and then we'll okay. call it for today. Great. Well, there's no more hands raised at the moment, but I do have a chat question for you. Okay. This is from Cloudy um, or Cloudy. Any recommendations for herbs or supplements to assist in lucid dreaming? I used to be able to become lucid when I was young, but have lost the ability. Yes. Uh, herbs. Well, herbs or supplements, you know, 
Galantamine, of course, comes from two flowers, so it's an herb, um, a fire, a spider lily and snowdrop daffodil or something, but it's been synthesized into a supplement called galantamine. That's my go-to. There are dozens of others. I would recommend, just for the sake of brevity, um, two books. One is uh, Dreaming Wide Awake by David J. Brown. Um, he has one or two quite good chapters where he goes through several dozen of these agents. Um, another one called Advanced Lucid Dreaming by Thomas Yushak. That's uh, also interesting. Um, that book has been pretty rigorously criticized by scientists because it's all anecdotal information. You know, there's no formal studies behind his data, at least that I'm aware of. Um, but those two books, probably David J. Brown's is the one I'd recommend more. Um, they go into these supplements in, in tremendous detail. I personally don't use anything but galantamine. That's just what works for me. So it works for me, so I haven't really even tried all these other agents, but there are a lot. Um, and uh, so yeah, go to those resources. And I believe in my conversation with David, I interviewed him in spring, we got into this a little bit because he, he definitely did a lot more research and rigor on this topic than I did. So galantamine is my go-to. Um, whether you call that an herb or not, that's up to you. It's synthesized from these two flowers. So that's the one that works the best for me. And actually studies, um, a number of studies have been done on this agent and um, several scientific studies, I know, I know of at least three, have shown that galantamine is extremely effective. And my personal experience definitely bears that out. But again, for some people, it does nothing. It definitely works for me. So good deal, everybody. Number 22 bites the dust. Um, I'll be back next week, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> but until then, wash your hands, keep your hearts open. When you feel the urge to complain, drop into your body, ask yourself, what am I feeling right now? I just don't want to feel. But thank you for joining me. It's always a delight to spend some time with you and I hope to see you next week. Ciao.